Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. And welcome back to another GeoMob podcast. Today, it's my enormous pleasure to be chatting with Jeremy Morley, who is one of my oldest friends within the Geo family. Today, Jeremy is the Chief Geospatial Scientist at the Ordnance Survey. But prior to that, he was the theme leader at the Nottingham Geospatial Institute. And prior to that, he was at University College London. Jeremy, welcome to GMR Podcast. Thanks, Stephen. It's a real uh, joy to be here. And uh, yes, speaking at the uh, GMOBs, you uh, join a fantastic panoply of uh, people. But I think on this podcast as well, it's an amazing set of people you've been uh, interviewing. So I'm uh, flattered and honoured to be here. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. And uh, yesterday you tweeted something about looking forward to this, this podcast and said that we'd been friends for 15 years, which made me gulp because I didn't realise it had been that long. But it is a long time. And I thought it might be an idea to just go back to around 2005 when we first met and look at the state of geo almost from 2005 up to today, because it sort of matches our friendship. Yeah, and I think also, if, if people haven't listened to Gary Gale's podcast, I think there are some interestingly kind of parallel trajectories probably in this as as well. You know, I came to know Gary about the same time as, as well. And, you know, in his podcast, he was talking about that period in about 2004-05 when Nokia first brought out the N95 smart but slow and dull phone. And then along came the uh, the Apple iPhone and, you know, devices started appearing that were substantially different to the kind of PDAs that people have been experimenting on for kind of geo, GIS kind of in the field tasks and were much more interactive and capable and had GPS built in. You didn't have to do some weird Bluetooth thing between a device and a separate Bluetooth kind of GPS dongle. And that really brought a revolution. And you know, up till about 2005, there was a a kind of perfectly happy kind of GIS industry, and I use the three letters uh, advisedly, that been happily getting on with doing things, even like maps on the web, supposedly interactive maps on the web, with loading dot, dot, dot uh, thing appeared yeah. every time you scrolled the map. And and it was that time where, which, uh, where everyone felt disrupted, I think it was in kind of GIS or geo by these devices entering, but then Google Maps coming along and this much slicker interface to data that soon covered the world. And it was that disruption. And and uh, also at the same time, the capabilities of all the web browsers suddenly took a huge leap forward where they could be much more interactive because of the technology under the hood and so on. And there was this huge space that opened up of people being able to put up kind of geo-aware web applications that could connect to, to devices or be available on devices that were really portable and interactive and had with G- GPS or location aware as well. And that really spawned a sudden burst of industry. You know, th- this is also sufficiently after the 2000.com crash as well. And there was this resurgence of small companies and startups and interest in people who wanted to do geo applications but weren't from that kind of GIS background. Exactly. And, uh, you know, when you talked about those screens refreshing with dots, you know, I, I think we can both remember a time when 
Maps meant Esri, MapInfo, Autodesk, and one or two others, you know. And there's that like great company, streetmap.co.uk, who yes. I used a lot in about like 2003, four, and would actually do the thing of printing out a map on paper to take with me off their site. <laughs> <and things, you laughs> yeah. Those days exactly. are gone, aren't they? Yeah, those days are gone. And uh, I think that company has gone, but I'm not sure. They, they lasted for much longer than I thought. But so we first met, as far as we can remember, in around 2005. And I think, weren't we both volunteers on an AGI uh, conference at that time? Yes, as I recall, it was your great endeavour in some ways for um, AGI. I know you've been involved in AGI in various ways, but it was that kind of revolution time as well where... The AGI had been running conferences for nearly a decade, but really alongside a trade show. And yeah, you went mostly to a trade show in various places like Earl's Court or Latterly, Chelsea Football Stadium and all sorts of places. And then somewhere around the uh, periphery of the trade show was a conference going on. And that trade show model, I think, was really starting to wind down. And as I recall, it was your kind of innovation to completely throw that in the air and be conference first and to... Uh, think about a community and the kind of geo community brand was was born and it was working on that action working group was it awg yeah. that i think we first met that's right yeah and in fact at that time i was running gdc and we'd been an exhibitor at those trade shows i think since their inception and every year we'd spend several thousand pounds i can't remember but it was a lot of our marketing budget went on exhibiting at that conference and we had to build stands if you remember what those exhibitions yeah, yeah. were like yeah and it was a big investment and lots of staff and everything and gradually it was becoming less and less viable you know we weren't generating business we weren't doing anything we were just standing on on an exhibition stand waiting for the odd potential customer to come along and i remember saying to I think alan jones was the chair of the agi that if you don't change the format of the conference, well, it wasn't a conference, it was a trade show with a conference on the side, as you said, if you don't change this format, my company won't exhibit again. And he said, well, he basically challenged me and said, well, what would you do then? And <laughs> I, money where your yeah, mouth is. Put your money where your mouth is. And uh, on that occasion, I managed to do it. You know, And that's how we started Geo Community, which in itself has been now going in slightly different incarnations for, you know, 12, 14 years. And that was much more of a, a gathering of people. The main part of the thing was the conference, not the exhibition, as you said. And um, The beauty of the timing there as well is that it was so beautifully coincidental with this kind of rise of the new technology stack that actually in those first, like, two or three conferences, it was a really vibrant thing, not just because it was a community event for Geo, but there was actually something to argue about as well. Yeah, there was the, yeah. wasn't it? There was the Paleo Geo and the Neo Geo camps. And you know, were you That's an old right. fashioned geo geotechnologist or a new fashion sort? You know, and there was all that argument about who would disrupt what and how everything would collapse for the paleos and all the rest. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, if I remember correctly, in one of those conferences, we persuaded Chris Osborne, who was a, an angry young man of the new wave of Geo, to run a complete stream across the three days, bringing in neo-geographers and people who 
a lot of the audience, the traditional audience who were hardcore GIS people, had never seen and never heard. And I think it was quite revelatory. Yeah, and it, the likes of Andrew Turner and people like that, who yeah. I can kind of still see around on Twitter, but have somehow moved away from the GeoCore or whatever we are, and I suppose are continuing very, very valuable businesses, but in a, in a slightly different way. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, Andrew now works for Esri, so uh, one could say that, you know, I mean, it's people like Andrew working at Esri that have maybe shifted Esri so that that distinction between Paleo and Neo that we used to talk about really doesn't exist any longer. You know, yes, I, mean, you I think that's a very call, good point, yeah. You wouldn't call a company like Esri a Paleo company any longer. You know, I mean, we've gone through all of that, you know. And I think if we, if you look at that arc, you know, you're right. We, we made those changes back in 2005, 2006, and it was fortuitous. I'm not going to claim that we were sort of visionaries when we changed the conference, but... Since then, you know, we both, for different reasons, found ourselves increasingly getting interested in open source. Yes, open in different uh, in different guises. You know, there's the open source yeah. and then kind of open data latterly as well. I mean, I think it is also not a coincidence that it was 2004 that Steve Coase founded OSA. I mean, you know, and that was because of not least devices like the N95 and then things like the mm. iPhone coming out with which one could go out and, and do mapping conveniently. And yeah, you know, there's a lot of these things. It's that convergence of technology that spawned a, a whole set of stuff. Yeah, it did. And Steve was a student at UCL, wasn't he? Yes, indeed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, you know, when you go to the OSM pages, you know, UCL is still credited now for uh, providing hosting for OSM. Yeah. And jump forward a few years, Jeremy, and I think I ran three GEO community events. And I think you ran, you chaired one or two of them as well, didn't you? Yeah, it was a couple of uh, GEO communities. And then I, I think I know where you're going with this. And then we got into the, uh, the crowning achievement of Map Timber, didn't we? We did indeed. What an achievement that was. Tell our listeners about Map Timber. Map Timber was a real culmination in some ways. It came about that in OSGO, the open source organization, their kind of annual conference, Phosphor G, free and open source software for geospatial, kind of moves around the world. And there are years where it's in, in Europe. And uh, at the time, I was working in uh, Nottingham Geospatial, and obviously enough in Nottingham at the University of Nottingham. And we had a conference uh, venue there. And there's always been a, a strong core of activity in uh, open source as well as kind of open data and OSM in the in the UK. And we thought, well, we why why couldn't we run this here? But also, we saw the opportunity maybe to run some events back to back. And so, why not? You know, given our history with uh, Geo Community, actually try and kind of bring that open source world to the GEA community of, of, of professionals across the span of things from, say, GIS officer at a, at a local authority to people who might in the past have called themselves uh, Neo-Geo. That had faded away by then. And so that was really the genesis of it with you looking after the OSGO, Phosphor-G side more and me on the AGI side of things. I think you understate your contribution to Phosphor-G, Jeremy. I think you, you may play an enormous role. 
But at the same time, we also had state of the map was in Birmingham in within a few days of phosphor and AGI. So we had a UK traditional geo conference. We had an open source conference. And we had an OpenStreetMap conference all taking place within about 10, 12 days of each other, which is how we got to MapTember, isn't it? Indeed. And, and yeah, the MapTember thing was to not just have them run conveniently close to the, each other, but actually to organise crossover between them. So there was actually an overlap in time between phosphor and GeoCommunity to allow people to kind of mingle and... Uh, co-create and all that sort of good stuff and and i think that worked really nicely you know it was a, a real high point i think it's it, amazing it, it was 2013 it's amazing how long ago it is now i know and if i and i think it was me who actually edited can't remember where there was the building for um the conference center on open street map or whether it was that open area where we built the marquee but i I renamed it Mappingham on yes. OpenStreetMap. And so for the time of the conference, the centre of Nottingham was called Mappingham rather than Nottingham. And yes, then indeed. I think, think I changed it back afterwards, or somebody changed it back afterwards. So we've seen that, that whole evolution from traditional geo to what we now just call geo because there's no neo or paleo attached to it. But whilst you were... Nottingham Geospatial Institute, and I was um, for a while, thanks to you and Mike Jackson and the external lecturer there, one of our projects was the OpenStreetMap GB project. Do you want to tell our listeners what that was and how it came about? Yes, I, th I think what was nice in that project was there was a kind of a yin and a yang to it, I, I, I guess, that we at NGI had been in the geospatial science kind of strand. We're interested in aspects of uh, data quality as well as openness and so on. And meanwhile, kind of OSM had been doing great guns and developing, but wasn't, say, widely used in the, in the public sector. And at the time, and this is speaking from my... Uh, viewpoint back then in uh, an academic organisation, there seemed to be great opportunities for public sector to be drawing on this free resource that didn't have kind of nearly so much complication in derived data rights and, and that sort of thing. But as I think we both saw it, one of the issues with OSM was things to do with reliability and consistency and quality of the data. So kind of the hypothesis around OSMGB really was, could we put an infrastructure together that actually served two things? Firstly, it did some of that quality checking and, and where possible quality fixing and or reporting back to the community where there were kind of uh, apparent bugs. But also another side was about kind of uptake by users and whether, because OSM's you know, still had its own invented means for distributing the data, whether if we fronted this quality checked OSM data with Open Geospatial Consortium, OGC services, things like web map services and web feature services, whether that would make it more accessible for businesses and particularly kind of things like lo local government where you could maybe attach your ESRI ArcGIS instance more easily to the data as well. So that was the germ of the idea. Yeah, that was the germ of the idea. And I think we were both also, I I think, very interested in the issue of authority. And maybe we'll touch on that in a minute, because I think it's 
it's often something that's forgotten in when you look at data. But so that was the idea. There were successes, but there were some disappointments as well. Yeah, I was just going to say in passing, I think we need to uh, just name check one spatial as our partners on that as well. Yeah, we couldn't have Quite right, uh, yeah. done that without their engine in the middle to actually do the rules based checking and to actually do the QA bit in the middle, you know, so yeah. they were an important partner in that in that project. They were a significant contributor, I agree. Yes. So I, I did it go wrong? I think because I said the project was a bit two headed, you know, that we had this kind of academic interest to an extent in partly showing how a system like this could be put together, but in kind of doing the checking and reporting, I guess that side of it was a success. We had an infrastructure that went up and stood up and really was pretty uh, resilient in terms of hits on the service and, and so on. After the project, it uh, didn't survive too long because of issues of hacking and keeping up to date, but that was really after funding had ended. However, I think on that other metric of did people um, start using it, I think there were glimpses and there were a few people of starting to pick it up, but it didn't. It, obviously, it's not revolutionised the world and it's not the thing everyone uses today. No, and I spoke to, because I think I probably was the public face in terms of reaching out to potential public sector users. And we ran several events which were well attended. And I spoke to lots of people who were very, very interested in this, you know, and I can remember, you know, talking to relatively senior people in public sector GI who were expressing a lot of interest in using OpenStreetMap. And I think that was partly a reflection of the challenges that they had at that time in using ordnance survey data and derived data restraints and various other restraints, which don't exist anymore. I think if you wanted to claim a success, you might say that we, we were a very tiny contributor towards that changing focus at, at ordnance survey. I think... Yeah, reflecting on that, you know, it's failure factors, if you like, as opposed to the success factors. I think in some ways the project was outpaced. It wasn't entirely coincidental. I mean, the, a problem with a research project like that is you build the thing and you do a little bit of research on it, but then there's the big question of turning it into something that exists on its own, that, that pays its way, as it were. And I think actually the primary problem was we didn't really have a commercialization model or at least a business model in the sense of of just paying enough cost to keep the keep the lights on and all the rest Absolutely. of it we'd, we'd come into it as a and d project and uh, wouldn't it be nice if and that was that was fine as for my if you like key performance indicators at the time actually continuing running a service wasn't wasn't the be all and end all so that was the a point but i think anyway it was pretty close to the time at the end of Gordon Brown's government where there was this announcement of whole chunks of ordnance survey data becoming open and then kind of OS's data OS's journey since then has been towards increasing derived data rights and i think that that change at the end of Gordon Brown's government of the open data was a, a seed of many things inside OS it's, just before I really got to the organization, but the founding of Geovation for yeah, reaching out to um, SMEs and a slightly different community to 
just be visible elsewhere and to understand the needs of in other places. Yeah, that was really a lot of what was in Peter Tahar's mind at the time. As you know, geovation has evolved and morphed a bit over time, but it was really getting into those communities at, at the time. And all of that, I think, really meant that, say, the public sector and just others who were interested in using this authoritative data, their maybe view of what was necessary was changing rapidly as well. I agree. And I think, you know, that if we were to sum up OSMGB as a research project, if we look at our objective as a research project, we all, I think we succeeded in nearly all of those. One of the questions we were asking is, was there a, a sustainable commercial model? And I don't mean necessarily making profits, but just a model that would enable a service to be sustained over time. And the answer to that was no, that doesn't make it a failure. It just was... That was the result, yeah. <laughs> that was a result, full stop. You know, we got lots of people saying, oh, this is a great service, we love using it. When they were asked whether they would put their hands in their pocket and contribute a few hundred pounds a year or something to sustain that service, all of a sudden they didn't love it quite so much. And I'm sure a lot of that was because, as you said, the open data that was coming out of Ordnance Survey became so much more usable and uh, it was backed by the authority of Ordnance Survey. And I think, you know, that's a really important thing, you know, that people, you know, people in public sector need data that has authority. You know, they can't, you can't base, you can't plan, you can't base services on data that is crowdsourced, I don't think. And I don't think that's going to change. And I think there are, well, yeah, when you're doing error fixing or bug fixing, or at least suggesting bug fixes in a data set like OSM, that only improves one of the measures of one or two of the measures of quality, maybe. Maybe there's stuff to do with geometry and maybe stuff to do with labeling that you can detect bugs in. But there's a whole other set of stuff to do with completeness and consistency that isn't really touched by that. And at least the time when we were looking at it, one of the issues with OSM in the UK was that you got kind of variable semantic content and maybe variable detail depending on where you looked because of the clusters of contributors and so on. And one of the interesting features of OSM is that you know, uh, clustered mapping. Um, I wouldn't say I was uh, so deeply into understanding OSM these days to know whether that has smoothed out in the intervening five, seven years what it's been whatever it's been because of the increased kind of density of mapping. But I still feel there's something in there that you know, any company who's taking on OSM, one of the things you have to do is kind of uh, smooth out that uh, the data set somehow. Yes, and that's, that's a big challenge. I mean, I think technology is making it easier, but um, the freeform tagging model does make it very difficult to get attribute consistency across a geography, let alone across the world. And looking back, I was just browsing through Google Scholar and uh, papers that came out from that project around the time. Actually, the, by far the most cited paper is the one we produced, which was actually about conflating OSM and OS open data at the time. And yeah, that paper was oriented around, well, you've got the authority and the consistency of the uh, OS open data, why not add the richness and vagaries of OSM data into it and maybe bringing some extra content? And that's really the paper that's been much more cited than the tools to create it or, or how, to, you know, how to manage that kind of OSM quality stuff. And I think that's indicative. Yeah, I agree. So let's, you know, you said jokingly to me, 
uh, we don't want to be two old gits talking about the past the whole time. And you're absolutely right. So let's jump to the, the present day where you're chief geospatial scientist at the Ordnance Survey. What does a chief geospatial scientist do? So my role there is really as the keeper of the longer term research that we uh, we do in OS. So mostly that research is uh, done externally, mostly at universities, mostly at the U- in the UK and mostly by PhD students. And none of those by definition necessarily, but for kind of funding and reasons for sort of co-funding from research councils and convenience of being able to talk to people and so on, although maybe that's shifting in uh, in 2020 that we've tended to stick with uh, with that so we're I tend to say we've got kind of three different uh, reasons to do research of, of this sort this kind of longer horizon stuff one is very much kind of known unknown kind of problems to borrow that classic from uh, Donald Rumsfeld of widgety stuff which we know we're gonna have to do in the future so some of the classic kind of national mapping agency things like how do you build a national 3d data set or how would you and how do you do generalization in 3d instead of uh, 2d and what's the role of crowdsourcing those are fairly specifiable pieces of uh, R&D we then have kind of exploring how geo fits new sectors and then what's the relationship for a national mapping agency so that might be say autonomous vehicles or internet of things technology and uh, aspects like that and then the third thing really is horizon scanning and uh, seeing what's coming over the horizon and whether it's of use or a potential disruption or, or whatever as well and really though a lot of our research falls into uh, one of those three categories so can you share any examples of what research is going on at the moment? Yeah, I suppose let's go with the two ends of that spectrum of something that is more easily identifiable as, as known unknowns, but still interesting research. And then uh, the sort of further out piece of uh, R&D. So right. nearer horizon, then we, like so many people in the world, are interested in how machine learning fits into our business. And we've had project work in that area for uh, five years or so now with a, a view to building for ourselves a deep learning network that can um, recognize a general set of features that are kind of trained on our data from which we could uh, then think about deriving more specifically trained networks to do work uh, towards either generating new feature sets or products or simply speeding up the way we can produce products now and that is that's a many-headed beast these days that some of that is moving into production systems some of it spins off new phd projects for example in some human factors elements of how do you bring people in more effectively to tag data to put into that training of the uh, of the networks and how to best use the subtlety of insights that that people have to better train the, the network for those uh, subtle or pivotal cases. So there's, there's that kind of thing, which is exciting and I think cutting edge R&D, but is a, a specifiable and uh, even in here and now in its outputs. At the other end, we have kind of uh, uh, radical new technology stuff, I suppose you could say. So in the quantum technology hub at uh, the University of Birmingham over the last few years, they've been developing uh, new and sophisticated gravity sensing devices that just can measure gravity more more sensitively by sending clouds of atoms up through tubes and uh, hitting them with, with laser beams and working out, therefore, how they differently get to the top of the tubes, what the gravity field must have been in between, which very esoteric and, uh, and physics, but... Yet, on the other hand, is emerging from a lab as a device you can start testing. 
and yeah, what does gravity measure but uh, changes in density? And what do changes in density underground come from? Well, buried assets and things like that. So, ah, uh, I was I was listening to you, and I was thinking, what the heck are they bothering with that for? Where the hell is that going? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is OS interested in gravity? Well, okay, so I suppose at one end we might be interested in things like geoids, but this is particularly around that really important and emerging area of, of buried assets. And there, in the longer term, relates to things like the National Underground Asset Register projects and all of these good things in working out where our buried stuff is. And if this quantum gravity technology fills interesting niche in being able to, to detect stuff underground. It, it can detect stuff that's a bit lower in a bit more detail. And so yeah, we expect it to be kind of complementary rather than revolutionary to uh, things like ground penetrating radar and electromagnetics and so on. So we have an Innovate UK project just starting up with uh, Northumbrian Water as the lead and uh, partners at the University of Birmingham and SME called uh, RACO are interested in the machine learning and processing and RSK as our surveyors and experts in that kind of ground survey work. Wow, that sounds fascinating. So it's quite a big range, isn't it? Over the last five years that you've been chief geospatial scientist, you get called on, now you're a media star, aren't you? Oh, overstating it, but yes. <laughs> wheeled out so, in front of the cameras and mics from time to time, yes. So when you get wheeled out, what's... Uh, what kind of stuff do you end up talking about? It's an uh, interesting range. So knowing that this question was coming, I've, uh, I've got three examples for you. So the, the early example of, of being told there was an interview coming and best get on top of it was uh, with driverless tractors running around the parking lot at uh, Ordnance Survey. So the story there was about uh, case tractors using the OSNET signal for much better GNSS correction and not just that, but having kind of live mobile updates to the, the cab for this as, as well. And so Case brought their tractors in and we were uh, driving them up and down. And the interview was all about kind of Osnet, really, but um, right. looked great, you know, and uh, got to sit in the cab and things. So that was quite fun. In the middle, much more specifically kind of useful output, I suppose you could say, was talking about some work that had actually gone on mostly before my time with the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency about delivering a system that would manage vernacular names for them so that at the Coast Guard stations, when a call comes in, one of the screens they have is for this system called Fintan which allows the Coast Guard as a whole to curate a database of, of vernacular names. So if someone is uh, shouting about someone going in off some rocks, that there's a maybe a better chance of finding out what they're talking about. Although actually, as much as anything, interestingly, uh, one of the benefits to the Coast Guards of Fintan is simply having some of our having a load of our maps in there. Because in the past, when you called the Coast Guard, you were probably at a phone box and the Coast Guard could ask, well, which phone box are you at? But these days, if someone calls from their mobile, you know, it's it's uh, comes on to uh, so uh, which car park were you at and how did you get to where you're looking at and and where are you questions and that's where the fintan thing comes in is is finding people. And last example, just a, a few weeks ago, was uh, uh, Radio Three of all things uh, talking to the BBC about uh, possibly finding uh, natural amphitheatres and things like that where. They might stage concerts outdoors with socially distanced audiences since you can't get a, a big audience and an orchestra uh, indoors very uh, effectively uh, anymore. So uh, quite a range. Quite a range. Um, you're going to become the uh, face of Ordnance Survey in the media if you're not careful, Jeremy. 
I don't think so. I think there are plenty of my colleagues who uh, who go on these uh, these things as well. So, sort of just the last question about the ordnance survey, Jeremy. Looking to the future, probably in those future scanning technologies, is there something that we're not doing yet that you think we should be doing, or an area of research which we don't know much about but that really excites you? Areas of research that excites me, I think some of that, yeah, the quantum technology we were talking about earlier is uh, in really exciting stuff. I think there's things in, although it may not sound super sexy, I think there's things in resilience of positioning and location finding as well and and reliance on GNSS and, and how we work with that. I think that's an increasingly important topic in the, in the world. But I think there's there's still it's new and it's old at the same time of the opportunity of earth observation you know that at its heart a lot of our data collection is still the same as it was say at the turn of the centuries not in the detail of it but in the sense of being from aerial photogrammetry and from surveyors on the crowd on the ground and so on so the the technology and the techniques have moved on, but still it's that kind of data collection. So at one end, you've got Earth observation with you know, a sky full of stars, as it were, of, of uh, satellites going up to uh, with high resolution, high revisit times. And so at some point, it's been a, a, a some point for the last 20 years, but at some point there's some tipping point where you could maybe get as much from EO as you could from uh, aerial survey. But I think more generally, the world is going to be about data fusion, you know, that we there are many more different possible sources for data. And if you want to move towards liver data and you know, more update frequency and uh, liveness, then you, you move towards collecting data vicariously from things like uh, vehicles equipped with cameras or possibly even LIDAR that are traveling around, which links to that autonomous vehicle sector. There's drones and all sorts of other things, but you get into a much bigger kind of mess of data sources there and producing consistent data that's fused from lots of different uh, geomatic sources that's going to be a really interesting kind of key point for us i think in the in the factory side of the the business ultimately yeah i was going to say so for example just to put that into some sort of layman's terms potentially the feed coming from onboard cameras in ordinary cars might detect that a shop has changed ownership and there's a new, new sign above the door and that would feed back into the map in terms of a change of ownership of that building within days rather than the current several months or even a year that it might take in the current. Format. Yeah, I, th I think our update's a bit bit quicker than that, but yes, definitely, it's that liveness in the in the data. And I think when you get into sectors like the autonomous vehicles, then you get into that different layers of dynamism in the data. You've got your basic road infrastructure and highways infrastructure that may not change very often. You may get new roads and and so on and revision of junk junctions, but that's on a kind of periodic interval. You then get the kind of change that is intermittent so there's some roadworks that that day and that changes the the layout of the road that the vehicle has to uh, navigate through and that maybe you rely on the vehicle doing that but maybe actually by the junctions you have roadside units that are communicating information about current layout 
And then you get then for the vehicles, you have the other problem of the moment by moment thing of avoiding the unexpected parked cars or people stepping out and, and that sort. So this world of, of what's, what's there in the world, I think we're moving away from that kind of topographic view of the world where um, you make a 2D map and every year or two you come back or every six months you come back and revise it or whatever to something where you need different levels of temporal gra granularity in the uh, in the information as well wow exciting times certainly if you, you know we've just jumped from 2005 when a web map took maybe half a minute to refresh on your computer screen to a time when the actual map data is going to be refreshing almost within seconds of events happening in the real world. That's quite yeah, a, it's a, it's, that it's made. a lovely feedback in some ways because you know yeah. what changed in that time, two thousand and four five, was the internet capability and having uh, interactive devices on a cell phone line that uh, that had GPS in, and you know, so plus yeah. change in some ways. Yeah, you're right. So. That's a great point to finish, Jeremy. But before we go, my standard closing question. You've been a speaker and an attendee at lots of geomobs, I think. So have you got a favourite geomob moment? This is a ducking out question. But my, the things that I find favourite at, at geomob, as much as I, I've enjoyed uh, presentations of one sort or another over, over the years, including the aforementioned star, uh, Mr Gale, as, uh, in particular... Yeah. Actually, my favourite moments are the discussions in the pub afterwards. Right, I think, and it's 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 that that I value in going to GMOB. I enjoy the the presentations and seeing that kind of mix of things from you know the one man band start up to the academic projects to the things that are going great guns. But it's the opportunity to network and and mingle with a really interesting cross section of of geofolk because of all those presenters and all those interests, what GMOB brings is a, a really interesting bringing together of, of people. And that's, that, to me, is the, uh, the strong value of the thing. I think you just summed that up beautifully, Jeremy. And hopefully, it's not going to be too much longer before we can have GMOB back on the ground and we can celebrate those conversations in the pub afterwards. Indeed. Jeremy, thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. I look forward to having a drink with you really soon once we're out of this lockdown. Take care. Likewise, Stephen. Thank you. Yes, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully, you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GMOP event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.